0: You're listening to The Ray Report, a multimedia platform curated by The Ray Group International to highlight women's professional and humanitarian success and create more success through storytelling, empowering conversation, and encouraging engagement for network building and mentorship. On today's show, we'll meet an extraordinary woman and leader, former President of Malawi, Her Excellency Joyce Banda. She's only the second female president on the continent of Africa, and the first female president in her country. She's an author, speaker, mother, wife, and a tremendous and awe-inspiring humanitarian. We'll hear her perspective on how leaders are born, how that particular statement influenced her growth as a woman, entrepreneur, and all the way to her presidency. Your Excellency, we welcome you to The Ray Report, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Before the show, we began talking about your theory that leaders are born. Our audience would love to hear more about that. We'd also like to hear more about your life in Malawi, your personal mission, and what initially drove you to be a champion for women's health and education.
1: Yeah, uh, perhaps I should start upside down. I should start by telling you that I've just uh, finished uh, my fellowship at the Center, uh, looking at women's
2: Congratulations. I,
1: thank you. And so I was um, uh, I was making a case that we had I believe that with a bond, I know it's a controversial issue. a billion-dollar uh, industry. And so many people don't want to admit that we bond. But I insist that we Fortunately there's a research supporting my argument They're saying that we well They are born with 30% leadership traits. 70% has to be That's what you find when you go leadership traits. So, now going back to me, I believe that, and I hope that I'm talking to many people who have gotten this. And I believe that I'm talking to many people who have gotten this. And what is it that they can do? that child is growing up, bring that out, support that child, provide the opportunity to this child to take advantage of those that the best raised. That's what happened in my life. But what happened in my life, coming from Africa and a typical African family, I was lucky that all these things happened automatically, now that when I grew up, when I saw when I realized how long I was, I have spent my entire life championing causes of uh, women and girls. But I've also
2: been fortunate that all the issues that I've championed throughout
1: my life originated in this And so I was born in Malawi, six to seven years ago, in a typical Fortunately, there was a a, a British nurse who had come to establish a clinic in that village, and I was one of the babies that were born. Fortunately, fortunately, born in this small, newly established clinic. And I come from a a tradition where we follow the matrilineal system of marriage, where all the women live in the village; the husbands come and deal with that. That a part of the country is patrilineal where women have to go and live the with their husband. So I was fortunate to be born in a patrilineal system of life. The custom in that, in that system is that your grandmother must give you her name.
2: And that at any time she,
1: she dies, even if you're 12 years old, you become the patriarch part. of the
2: family. If you're 40 years
1: old, you become the matriarch of the family. You inherit all that she had. You inherit her name, but you also inherit her position. I mean, everybody will respect you. You know my daughter, Edith, who is a good friend of yours. Her name, Edith, is my mother's name. When my mother died, now she's our mother. Even me, I call her mother. That's So in, in my case, I was supposed to be called Hilda. Maybe you've seen my email address. Yes. That's the name I was supposed to be because my ma- my grandmother was Hilda. So I just wanted to show you that things built up in my life that led me to By my grandmother carrying me on her lap, this lady came round. I'm born yesterday. My grandmother is carrying me. This lady is coming round to see the ladies that were born yesterday. I'll talk about the Britishness. She asked my grandmother, What is the name of this baby going to be? My grandmother should have said, Tell her she's going to take my name that's our custom. She gets excited by this. You white lady from America, I'm from the UK, in ne- a nurse's uniform. She says, ask her what her name is. And the new lady says, tell her my name is Joyce. My grandmother says, well, then that's the name of this paper. This paper is going to be called Joyce, because when she grows up, she's going to be a like. So, I was denied the right to take my grandmother's name and to become my a martyr of my family. In fact, it was at 12 years old that the people in the community started making me aware that I'm, I'm different. I don't carry my mother's, my grandmother's name. And I went back to my grandmother and said, well, where, where did this name come from? I'm supposed to be your name. She says, oh, yeah, but you know this. You know what? You're going to be lost. So that's number one. Number two, in my tradition, the grandmother, when she names you, she brings you up. Your mother will breastfeed when you are one year and a half and over to your grandmother. Because your grandmother is going to mold you, bring you up to become the perfect housewife in the community, and everybody will require and say, Oh, she was brought up by her grandmother. Then something the then the, the, the goes on. My father had just started work in the libraries. The police was just established and they wanted a police band, so they were recruiting. My father went lined up and was recruited. He comes to the village He says, I'm taking my daughter. My grandmother says, it will not happen because in our tradition, I'm supposed to bring up this care. My father says, "Not it will happen because I want to save her. So things are happening that are different. All laws are being broken in the tradition. My father then made a deal with my grandmother. I will keep her for five days, and every Friday, without fail, I'll send her home so you can So they start a the deal. So I lived with my father 15 years away. Every Friday, he gave me one shilling and sixpence. From school, I'll jump on a bus and I'll go to the bus where my grandmother lived. Then Monday morning, I'll go back to town. Without fail, every time I go to the village, there was a friend of mine from the village. Her name was Chrissy. and Chrisa,
2: and Chris would be waiting for me by the roadside,
1: and we would walk together into the village. And she would tell me what happened while I was away. She told me all about village life because I was I had no opportunity to learn how to catch crabs, how to pick wild uh, mushrooms, wild fruits because I was living in town. But Chris told me all that, and I would also to, to tell her what had happened. I remember the first time I spoke on the table, telling her how I gave the voice oh, at the other end. She didn't understand how that could have happened. I went to the urban school, she went to the, to, the, to the local to the village school. She was brighter than me. I know she was, because she was first position in the class. And I was wrong. We got to the end of primary school. We were both selected to the best Catholic Girls Center schools in. And I went to Providence Center so School, and she went to St. Mary's. And I came back the next holiday, Chris was not by the roadside. And this is an issue that I speak with so much emotion. Because that's the first time i walk. At I'm 14 years old. But my grandmother told me, Chris, I won't be coming to see you anymore because Chris dropped out of school. And I was told that it was because her family failed to raise six dollars for her to go to school, so the brothers went but she couldn't go anywhere. This is where I lived. said, got married at 15, the child that she had at 15, dropped and died here. And I went on and on and ended up in state house. So it was at 14 years old and that I woke up to the injustice of this one. And I remember telling my father to raise $6 for Christmas, but my father told me my salary is $18, so I'm the three of you go to, to, to the problem to celebrate. I have nothing. So unfortunately, there was very little I for Christmas. But it was at 14 when I made up my mind I was going to spend my life educating as many girls as possible. Do what I could do for
0: Christmas. Amazing. Hearing this portion of your upbringing, from your namesake to your father's involvement and encouraging you to be a well-rounded individual, no matter your gender, is very touching. Your best friend, Krissa, her story is so similar to the stories of many young girls in Malawi today, facing the reality of not being able to finish school, perhaps having their parents die young, having children early, or having to marry early. It's incredible you were so young, Yet you were able to overstand the situation of your best friend, perhaps having a lesser life experience than you. You chose to do what you could to help her, thus influencing you later in life to eradicate these circumstances from young girls' lives in Malawi and allow them to finish their education and thrive as women and leaders. You are truly an extraordinary woman. When we return, we'll hear more from Her Excellency. We'll hear more about family, marriage in Malawi, friendship, motherhood, her father, and her time as president, and why she is recognized among the people in Malawi as a true leader, and how her leadership ultimately inspires and influences peace, even in the most tumultuous times in Malawi's history. All that when we return on The Ray Report. If you're ready to experience a happy, peaceful, and fulfilling lifestyle, then you need to live the Ray Life. Ray Life NYC provides holistic fitness, wellness, style imaging consulting, personal shopping services, and more to high-profile clientele throughout New York City. Directed by Jerica Ray Whitlock, and Alexis Ray-Gainor, Ray Gaynor, RayLife NYC elevates clientele to increase confidence and positive influence. For more information and booking, call 914-659-7966. You're ready to live the Ray Life. Contact us today. RayLife NYC
3: Thank you, Your Excellency, Dr. Joyce Banda, for joining us on The Ray Report. We are honored to be able to interview you and learn more about all of the work you're doing to improve the well-being of women and children on the planet.
0: Let's continue on. Please tell us more about your father and how he influenced your work.
1: I was eight years old when my father was talking with me because my father lost his father very early. And he, saw he was so hurt when he saw his friends went to school. and so his own grandmother and his own mother got married again to a, to a rich man in our in those in the standards of those days, but didn't accept this stepchild, so my father couldn't go very far. So he grew up very angry. I must make sure that you go to school. So he would sit with me and talk to me other stuff. He would tell me about girls' education, the importance of paper, the environment, the hygiene. And then I started writing articles in the newspapers. He would take whatever composition I had written in school at 10 years old, and he'd go to the newspapers, please can you put this letter from my daughter?
2: And so at one of
1: the times he was sitting with his friends, he would call us, because he was a musician to sing, he introduced us to classical music and very, he was a very ambitious man. And we watched him study music himself all the way to UK, he went to Nara College to study music. And it was at one of those times when you show off when he came and asked us to sing and come and sing and act, but he, this friend of his that we called up, what said, I don't know what I see in this child, but this child is to And my father laughed that day. He laughed because I don't care. I remember him actually saying. It's but it is the first time somebody said that I'm a that And I, I thank God that throughout now my growing up,
2: I didn't know
1: He didn't know the what? In a change, school, kids, in a but state house
2: That's
1: what. Never came, I mean, in anybody's mind, even in my world. He also did little, little things that built me up. Yeah. That, that I saw and then awakened those dreams in my mind. For example, because he was in the Michaelis, but the governor, who was the head of state then, was with a colony, and he saw, said, say anti. Robert Amity was the governor with his wife. The Mariah Chris Band would go to play music for him and his guests. And my dad sneaked me into two setups on one of those days. And I remember his friends laughing at him. Why do you take it? This is a girl. Where is she going? No, he goes So as the band went in, I knew in this car. So he put me there, and I was just sitting there watching my father and his friends play music, but the house, the government house, the state house, and before at the top, so the, the the and his wife and their friends are sitting there having tea, and I'm sitting here wondering what it must feel like to sit. You know, one day that became my state. And I remember the first time I entered that house as my own, as head of state. I walked up to that way So there's so much that parents can do to ignite that 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 spirit to make sure that the child begins to think be, and that's what happened in my case. I was 34 years old. And sorry excuse me, I was 29 years old. And I'm in an abusive marriage for 10 years. And in 1980 I decided to walk out. And I decided that I was going to fight Against abuse of women, gender based violence. So I spent 10 years myself in an abusive marriage. I walked out after 10 years and I made up my mind uh, when I left uh, that I shall never sit around and watch any other woman be abused if In 1984, at age uh, 34, having gone through a divorce in a new marriage, I was expecting a baby, I went into to a baby. And suffered what they call postpartum hemorrhage. And I was bleeding to death. In Africa, that is the highest cause of death is bleeding after death. And especially in villages where people go to you know, give birth in a village setup, they they die because you can't stop the bleeding when you're hemorrhaging. They call it postpartum hemorrhage. And I was hemorrhaging. But my husband was a high judge who had a friend was a gynecologist, one of the only three in the country, went, got him, and saved my life. So it comes that I made up my mind that I shall never accept that a woman should die giving life. I'm a Christian, I've really read the Bible, it. it doesn't say that we shall die like a chicken, giving life. Mm-hmm. And I made up my mind that, that I shall die. This, this you necessary. Know, so. I've been lucky that I discovered very early that girls, 131 girls, with it's man supporting what I'm saying, are not in school. So, research is not alone. It's among
2: 131 million.
1: So, you and I can sit here and we are going to school, but is, is it fair that 131 million girls are out of school, thrown off out of their own? Is it fair that women, thousands of women, one out in every five women is being abused and violated at house of devil
2: with men who should love them. This
1: gender based violence, domestic violence. Is it fair that women are dying like chicken, giving life? And then so as I began to fight and work and work, the leadership started growing and so I decided that I was going to spend my life. Fighting for So my mission in life is to assist women and youth, gain social and political funding through business and education. The leadership that seed that was planted, that was ignited at eight years old, continued to build. I was fifty-four years old. My husband had been justice school, so and
2: then justice So obviously I couldn't get active politics until retired.
1: So it was two thousand and four when the first time, for the first time, I went to parliament, and it was because people started saying, "Don't you think, after all you have done, you ought to be sitting where the laws are made, so you can influence passing of laws that protect women and children?" I said, "Yes, I don't know now if I made the right decision." So if you look at the work that I've done. The four organizations have started in Malawi, the thousands of women that I have supported by giving the
2: microfinance and business opportunities, all the training
1: that I got from Grameen Ban through Mohammed Yunus, and all the way that I've done, that the beneficiaries that total 1.3 million in Malawi, from the organization that I formed, the National Association of Business Women, the Young Women Leaders Network, the hunger project that I brought to Malawi after giving. with friends And of course, the Jewish population. The beneficiaries are welcome. I've done that work, but in initially, I, I found that I was not. Uh, and I was fortunate that the moment I entered Parliament, I was also appointed Minister of So straight away, I started building up a case to take to Parliament. I wanted a bill to be passed against domestic violence. And I called it domestic violence because I hoped that it would be easier to pass. I was naive, it was too hard, but I was focusing on the whole family. Domestic violence, the child in the house, the man in the house, the woman in the house. And Krisa
2: ended up becoming a champion in the village. The schools that are opened open in the village,
1: Krisa is the champion that was looking for little girls. And I was pleased to bring her to New York in 2018. Uh, she was able to meet Gordon Brown, who is the special envoy with girls' education, and the president. That's wow. Wonderful. That's, that's wonderful. wonderful. Yeah. Yes. So when
4: you when you look back at you at her experience, igniting you and and putting a cause in your heart and later on in life your own experiences with birth going on to have your position in parliament and with the bill that you sought to pass about domestic violence what was your what was your initial action to start the Joyce Banda Foundation
1: the, the Joyce Banda. But the, the, the first organization that I started was the National Association of Women. I believe, for my mission, as I told you, that I empower women through business and education, I believe that income into the household, through the woman, contributing to the economic status of the house, by the woman, earns her respect at household gives her the opportunity to share the decision making at household level, gives her the control over her body. Begin to make decisions about herself to be able to negotiate with her husband against speaking violence, and there is proof that when the woman becomes economically empowered, she gains risk. Uh, in a, in, a, in an impact study that was conducted funded by USAID in nineteen ninety nine in the youth Foundation, we discovered that seventy three percent of the women that we supported who are poverty poverty but eighty four percent gained respect at her level so then so then we began to, I began to work towards liberating the women, giving them power. But one other thing I discovered during my work was for the maybe three, four years, from 1989 to 1999 when I was running that national, that organization, the National Business Women. Maybe only two days per week I stayed in my house. Most of the time I spent at Crasswood. And I discovered that when I get to a village, the women are there, the men are not there. The men went to school and then became doctors and teachers. The sisters stay. The tragedy of that is that then the sister stays and gets married to a man who is not educated, And so it's very unlikely that the children being born there go to school.
2: So it was now my wish,
1: looking at Chris and looking at all this, that I was doing this all this work then we reached 50,000 women. By 1997, I received the Africa Prize of 1997, the, the, the here in New York. But then my worry was that the women are not going to school. And when the resources are low at household level, then the girls are not going, the boys are going. What is it that I can do? That's when I started education. to provide education. It is for boys and girls, but my wish was then 60% would be girls, so that as many girls as possible. Must go to school, and I'm proud to say that as of now, I have sent to school. That's amazing.
4: That's so amazing. amazing. Um, how did that work translate um, in the work as uh, president? Um, how how did you continue your work on the ground?
1: Yeah, the Jewish Fund Foundation is older than my my public mm-hmm. my my life. Um, I started the. National Association of Business Women mm-hmm. in nineteen ninety nine. This country, the United States country, the United States government, many years back, because it was USID Malawi that started assisting in nineteen ninety nine. So when I talk about needs assessment survey and the impact study and the training in Gramin Bank, uh, to go and work with Muhammad Yunus in in India, all that, all that was funded by the U.S. A, a U.S. aid in America. so I all allowed U.S. government. And in 1989, they brought us here for a study tour of six weeks and interacted with women's organizations. And by the time I left this country, I was very clear about my. Mind. I was going home to form an organization of women. So even the National Association of Business Women, I formed that after I visited the U.S. So it all started from there, and I started. Building up and making sure that I use every resource and every opportunity to make sure that I empower my fellow What has been the most challenging for you
3: with your professional and humanitarian work?
1: I think the most challenging, that is why when I'm after I received the class, when I formed the National Foundation, I started a for profit wing that provides private education in in a city set so that families can make contribution towards the education, so that I use that money to do my charity work. So the, there are two wings. The Joyce Panner Foundation International, which is also registered here, under 501C, is a charitable organization,
2: a not-for-profit organization that raises funds. But because it is difficult, to.
1: So the greatest challenge that I see, and it's not only just US government, organizations that are doing trade work on the ground, and the funding doesn't matter. What happens is you find that international NGOs will come into Africa and will not identify indigenous NGOs to work with, which is a great loss. Because if you come into Africa and your mission is to come and eradicate harmful traditions, you will not discover the you will not be able to you will lose out in maximizing all the resources that you have as opposed to when you get there and work with indigenous activists and players. So what has been the greatest challenge is the fact that there's that disconnect between international players and local indigenous players that work together. That is why in my case whether we get international funding or not, at least we can pay our salaries for our rural work. Because what I've done is we run one of the only three free secondary schools in Malawi. So that's the greatest challenge. We target child child headed households where a 14 year old is looking after us, where the parents are dead due to HIV. But sometimes because we don't get international funding, we don't get support, Joyce Panda Foundation
2: the, the limited company, is able to pay at least operational costs so that
1: we don't stop working. And I am just excited now that we find very young age, children, ages 13 to 15, that are now emerging as leaders. Just confirming what I've said, that leaders are born, that this year bought handbags, I mean, what you Backpacks. <laughs> backpacks, as well as school uniforms for fellow children. In, in the Just Fund Foundation school. The other one is 15, the other one is 13. Doing commendable work and helping in raising funds. So raising a big the greatest challenge.
3: Do you have any ideas how we could fix the gap between international funding going down to the uh, indigenous work or yes I, th- so? I
1: think I think I think there's so much that what I have found, like for example, I believe that for us to for, for Africa, it's not that we're not doing we're doing bad. We I am a very proud African woman who is now able to say now that Africa hasn't done that because we have won four female presidents. Probably women's leadership is under attack. You go from Julia Villand in Australia all the way to Dilma in Brazil, women. They, strong, they, being big, they get to state house and they are pushed out. There's now it is now clear, the pattern is very clear that's what is happening. But I I must I must also say that uh, we 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 have been fortunate that when women become leaders, they focus more on the issues of women. So. Um as asking
3: do you have any ideas on what could be a solution? Yeah,
1: so uh, the, the, the solution that I I, I think must happen is that like even our kids, I believe that for Africa to develop, Later. yes, we are going for other parts of the world that are still struggling to be one, the first woman into state we have done okay, but I believe that we must continue because Africa has done well. We must build on that success. We must find ways of getting women really into status in and. And we must find a way, and for that to happen, we must build networks of women leaders on the continent. We must make sure that women are empowered and they
2: are standing united and standing for each other and making sure that when we support a woman into a a parliamentary seat,
1: a state house, a position, we must stand by them and we must support them. For that to happen, we must have women leaders. And for women to become leaders, they must go to school. The other paper I have just published is one that looks into the life of a girl child 0 to 10 under the Center for Global Development. And I'm looking at what is going on in a typical African
2: household to this girl child that might stand in the way of her education,
1: particularly her education. So, for that to happen, we must have as many women as possible. But for women to become leaders, they must go not only to uh, primary school or secondary school, they must also go to the university. And my The way we solve this is that we must learn to listen to one another. We must have networks, not only among African women, building this critical mass of women leaders, but the women leaders that will also work with the fellow leaders on the global stage or other international organizations on the global stage that together can go down on the work together. And I have many examples of this. A young man by the name of Jack Moore, he runs the Jack Brewer Foundation.
2: He was 27 years
1: old when I met him. And he looked for me and said, I want to work with you, I've read so much about you. He looked at the schools and what that we have established. And we started working together. And the first time he was invited in the in, in, in to my village, I found women dancing there waiting for Mr. Jack Moore. And to them he must be an old man, a white old man. Jack was 27 after the
2: He had already arrived
1: and was sitting there on the floor eating mangoes with young boys in the village. When I got there, they said, we are waiting for Mr. Jack, who I said, but well, where is Jack? Jack and I have done so much in that village. He has donated the little office in the village. He has donated the little car that they use in the village to do the, the development work. We have built school blocks together. He has paid school fees. That's what we need. Friends. And the partners that come work with us, come look at what we are doing, look at what is it that they can do. Right now we feed more than ten thousand children a day. We give them one meal a day. That food comes from food newton. There's an organization called New Skin. They are in two beauty products. But their clients donate $30 a month and they uh, meal uh, packs of food, high nutritious. Mixtures that make quality. And so it is distributed to credible NGOs in Malawi. And so we provide one million a day to this time. They come today malnourished. In three months' time, they come with to the So it is those partnerships. I would like to appeal not just for Joyce Foundation, Nation, but for all organizations that are working for good on the continent of Africa. And, and there are so many. There are so many if Joyce of as we, foundation has reached one point three million Malawians, yes. what about if we have one
2: hundred thousand? That's one one
1: point three million. That's a lot of people benefiting, and that's what we need. to aim at. And they're being born.
3: We just have to yeah, identify just and, and, so and there's so, so many and
1: there's so many. We just need to identify them, mentor them, build them up. And then they become these young leaders. Just imagine 13-year-old African girls are distributing backpacks to children the grandchildren. Can you imagine take them to work? But then they need backpacks. Because this young guy, this girl,
2: lives in South Carolina. She comes from Cameroon, and she's distributing backpacks. And the people
1: that are contributing to those backpacks are her friends here in America. So it's about partnership. Um,
3: definitely, it really takes a village. It yeah, definitely takes yeah, a village. Yeah. What has been the most valuable lesson that you've learned through your life's work?
1: Yeah. I, 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 the the greatest lesson that I have learned throughout my career is that it's not going to come from anywhere
2: else. Nobody is going
1: to come from anywhere else to so solve. As Africans, women must rise first. And it is us, African women leaders, who must rise and raise a voice to fight for justice for fellow women and children. Lesson number two is that we, African women, are going to approach feminism in the African way. And what I mean is that we are not going to confront, I mean, we are not going to antagonize our We are not going to fight. We are going to work together. If we say that men are the problem, the men must become the solution. And I truly believe is that when we work together, we will yield more. So for me, in Africa, I think we are doing better than most continents, even in supporting women and getting them to leadership, because we are working hand in hand who must open space for us also as players? Okay, well, and uh, what I've done is, even if we don't have to get money, we just identify the girls and pay their school fees. Somebody, I've got 30 students in it, maybe the medical school now. Two more semesters, now we shall not play them But, so I have the time, I have, and their their fees together, the third of them is dollars All of them put together. Somebody here said 7000 dollars Each as a no, all of them put together. They're check. They went into another service. So so he didn't try to check to the first one foundation, I said write a check to the college. So what I am saying is that there's so many people here that can afford $20. Because if you begin to divide $7,000 by then, it's about $200. There are so many people here now who say, give me a student, medical student. I will support that medical student. And I will pay the $500 per semester. And then four years down the line, Malawi has an next doctor. But you use the Jewish Spanish Foundation to identify the student. But there was also a direct relationship between the sponsor and the student. These are easy things that we can work out and do together. So when you say we are supporting Africa, which I started it twenty years ago, but I have helped Africa produce fifteen doctors and I am just me, an American living here, that must be really enriching for anybody. Absolutely. Yeah. It's
3: so it's so inspiring yeah. to know the legacy that you're leaving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Through passionate hard work.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: What woman has inspired
1: you the most in your life? Woman? Mosey okay. Weber. Okay. Who's that? Mosey started out as a, a sickle servant. Not me. Started out as a sickle servant to women Ellen Seddy and Mosey Weber. Mosey started out as a sickle servant to the in the World Bank, I mean, as an officer in the World Bank, worked her way up, and then was appointed finance minister of Nigeria. Then she went and went so hard during the epic, the, the, the forgiveness of date by the World Bank, went through that successfully, and then he left, went back to the World Bank. Then when President Jonathan came, she was also appointed to go back to the World Bank. But the thing about Ngozi is that she has been able to look back. There are so many people that leave the continent and don't give back. And don't look back and don't go back. What I say myself is that when you leave that continent and come over here, you. you don't have to go back, but you have to look back. Make sure that you look back. And she has she's one person that I think I highly respect, that she she looks, she, she she has looked back. The second woman is the Obi. Obi used to be the vice president of the World And then later on, when I was president, she was my advisor. So when I was fighting corruption and I was arresting people, she is the one who told me to say, it is not easy to fight corruption. Corruption is tough. They smear they fight you back and they
2: smear that bubble to you because you're fighting powerful people. So
1: have a document that ignoration. So for me to conduct a forensic audit, by the day I did the audit firm the British, by the British government that was funded by the British government. It was because of that advice. But I am glad I did. Because now there is a document that exonerates me. But also that shows that a leader can conduct a French audit in a government during her time. And it's a document online. I highly respect her because now she's fighting tooth and nail to get all the book girls back. She used to be the minister of education. in the Okay. And of course the last one is Ellen Serif. Ellen Serif has been through thick and She worked for the World Bank. she worked for the UN. but he her heart was for I must her. she tried she tried to stand for elections twice, lost. She has been in, in prison for six months. She fought Charles Taylor. She then finally third time became president. And she has Change around Liberia from a war-torn country to the country that we see now. That's very impressive.
4: With inspiration such as that, um, did you find that same inspiration when when you were president? Yeah, what I
1: discovered that I didn't know before is that um, being president is a available. With a stroke of a pain, you can make over break.
2: I am one that believes that there's a really distinct
1: difference between being in power and being a leader. And what I believe is that most women are leaders. You can get into state house and have the power, and then do very little. But stick to the power, and do all it takes to remain in power. You can even kill anybody. Remain in power. But when you lead, you empathize, you sympathize, you love the people. Leadership is a love affair. You must fall in love with the people that you lead, and the people must fall in love with you. So when they have no food, you must must feel the pain. When they have no electricity, you must not sleep, even if you have electricity as a head of state, because you have generators outside. It is the, when you are a leader that you will engage the people, that you will tell them what's going on, good and bad. Because when you engage them, they are the biggest supporters you can have that will start with you. So the biggest lesson that I learned when I was president was the difference between being a leader and being a ruler, being a leader and being in power. And it is the time when I was president that I got to understand Leadership is redefined. Gone are the days when you get into a state and think you're going to oppress anybody and think you're going to, 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 to order around anybody. Mm. Being a leader means you understanding that you are in charge, that you are leading at the pleasure of the people that gave you the mandate in the first place. So the people have chosen you. You are in state house, and you must be bearing in mind that the mandate
4: belongs to them. Yeah. I, I believe one great example of, of your leadership is that you have, throughout their challenges, you have inspired great peace within your people. And I think one example that I'd love for you to speak about is most recently when your sister was incarcerated and there were no riots, there were no fighting, people were dancing, your son was speaking poetry, and your sister was freed. So could you elaborate and tell us a little bit more about that? Because I think it's a wonderful focal point of the kind of leader that you are to inspire such
1: I think that he, that is a characteristic of most women leaders that they love peace. That, which a tragedy, I've been speaking this week at the UN. I've been speaking at Club de Madrid. That uh, women need to be engaged in peacekeeping. Women need to be engaged in peacemaking. Women need to be engaged in mediation because I think by nature we love peace. So we will make sure that or any conflict, we have tried our level best
2: to bring about peace. And coexistence is very, very good for women
1: because we believe people can only prosper, countries can only prosper when they have peace. And you will notice, if you check again, in addition to what you just said, that during my time, I opened up for press freedom. I believe that people that are free to speak to say anything even against you as a leader, are the people that can really exploit their gifts and, 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 and prosper a nation. So I opened up, so on the global index, if you check, when I became president, we were at position 145. In one year, we went to 79 and were graduated by him, Because I just said, open up. Allow people to associate freely, speak freely, and write freely. Secondly, when I was president, I made sure that they keep saying, Oh, she was too nice, or, she was too soft. Maybe that's the characteristic of a woman leader. But because they know you know you love this, I her, every woman, every most leaders that are former face challenges of different degrees. But I think in my case it has been me too much, to an extent that even my family has been targeted. So when my sister was incarcerated and the for, for for being on social media. So it's the opposite of what I was just talking about, about press freedom. For social media, she announced that I was coming back. Then she was locked up together with uh, the, four four friends of us. But the way the country reacted, instead of throwing stones, they went and camped at the prison place where she was speaking. And they spent lines there, waiting and encouraging her so that she doesn't break. And uh, a few days later, yes, I'm grateful for what the Amnesty International did and other organizations did. But uh, in the end, it was ordinary people. And it goes back to what I said when you've been a good leader, when, you, when people know you love them, people will love you back. And when they, have, they are voiceless, they will sing at us.
3: That's What does Malawi mean to you?
1: Malawi is a small is country. But Malawi is where we are. And Malawi is all I have. And so Malawi is very important. And I know that there's potential. And there's proof that if you look at most of our neighboring countries, the human resources come from Malawi, including some presidents in other countries. Like Malawi. So this little country has produced presidents for other countries, has produced doctors for the region, has produced labor for the region. Uh, I mean, Malawi, for me, is the best thing that has ever happened to me. I can't be
2: anything else
1: but uh, yeah. Malawi. Mm-hmm. Malawi produced
3: Joyce Banda. Malawi <laughs> produced Joyce. <Banda. laughs> Absolutely. That's oh, lovely, lovely. One question before we go to the fun part: um, What advice would you give a young woman looking to start a career in politics or the nonprofit sector? Um,
1: I think advice that I I always go back to being an African woman because that's what I know best how to build up to become a leader it's when, when I'm, because I'm an African woman and so what I can say is that anybody who wants to build a career in politics an African woman you start by building up yourself in this civil society. It starts from activism. It starts from being available to change the situation of order. And I have
2: found in my case that when you do that without expecting a reward. When the people see that you are really service,
1: you are working, but you are a volunteer. You are just assisting people. You are just helping. They grow to trust you more than when you're doing things to get paid, you looking for money. I believe that in Africa, each one of us have a village that we can go, where we come from. And in Malawi, you can't stand for election anywhere else. You can't be born in South Carolina and stand for elections in New York. That doesn't happen. Even if you're living in New York, when it comes now to stand for election, elected office, you must go to Young lady, in your mind, you want one day to be in politics, then make sure that you have a relationship with people. Continuously. You are living in New York, but weekends you go home, you are seen at home, you you are active at home, in the church at home, so that the day you announce that I am going to stand for election, the people in South Carolina know who you are. So for, 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 for Africa, for African women, Men and women who build a career in politics, is powerful. So my advice would be for young women in Africa, make sure that you are religious. Right. Some
4: fun personal questions. What's your favorite color? Orange. Orange. Band yes. Orange. We know it's your band of orange, Bando. <laughs> yes. and. Um, For your favorite type of music, what's your favorite type of music?
1: Like my, I, I come, as I said, my father was a musician, and he ended up at Menomo College. He started music, he started music, and he loved classical music, and he introduced us to that serious music at a very early age. But as I was growing up, my favorite music is country music. And I think it was because when I grew up, my father liked So I've never changed, I've never liked anything else, and I have also influenced all my (laughs) children, like classical music, but they listen to nothing else every single day, but I mean country music, but they listen to country music every day. So that is uh, my favourite music, and I shall forever be grateful to my father, because he taught me the difference between a song and noise. Mm -hmm. Yes. Some, some when I hear the just noise. <laughs> <laughs>
3: What's your favorite
1: song? Do you have one? I have, yeah, I have, I have several, but I think the one that I like most is Dolly Parton's Hello. Listen to
4: Could you give us a little, little sample?
3: No.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, okay.
3: One phrase for us in your native tongue. What, what does it, mean? You? And it you mean? Yeah. Love it, love it. And can you describe yourself in one word? Yes. Courageous. 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 I mean, I definitely, definitely agree. I mean, I definitely. <laughs> agree. That is lovely. I love that. Right?
4: Perfect ending. Um, Dr. Joyce Banda, we thank you so much for joining us today on our show. Um, we hope to have you again. Dr.
3: Banda, it's been our pleasure. And I'm leaving here feeling more like a leader of myself. So thank you for the tips. <laughs> yeah. I am ready to go out into the world and make a difference for us women and girls. Oh, and let's, and let's go. <laughs>
0: To find out more about Her Excellency Dr. Joyce Banda, please log on to our website www.theraygroupintl.com. For more info and interviews, log on to our
3: website www.theraygroupintl.com/tr.